Please take out a Bible and open it to Isaiah chapter 1. In the last two weeks of my life, I spent time with a family that just lost a son to overdose and then did the funeral. I spent time with a good friend who might well be losing his job. I spent some time dealing and working with a friend and struggling with a friend who's got some really serious depression. I've had a family member get COVID. I've had family members with the flu. I've talked to people who are dealing with very serious physical pain. I've talked to someone who's thinking about not being married anymore. I spent time with somebody with an estranged child that won't even speak to them. That's just a sampling of my last couple of weeks. And hear me, I don't share that with you this morning to draw attention to me. I share that to draw attention to the reality of life and to acknowledge that life is not easy. In fact, it's very, very difficult. On Friday at the funeral, I shared part of Psalm 46. I'll read a verse to you it now. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The observation I made at the funeral, which absolutely holds true, is that if in revealing himself, God declares, I'm a refuge and strength. It's as if he's testifying that life is going to be at times so hard, so difficult, so challenging that you're going to need to find a place to hide. You're going to need somewhere to weather the storm. God says, it's me. I'm your refuge and strength. Friends, we shouldn't miss that. The Lord thinks we are going to need a refuge. That life is going to be difficult. Now, why do I start by telling you that this morning? I mean, am I just trying to sober you up, somber you? Am I trying just to discourage you? No, I say that because this morning we're starting an Advent series. And in many ways, Advent is the reality that life is difficult. Advent is a confession that life is full of trials and affliction and suffering. Advent is an acknowledgement that life could be really hard and dark sometimes. And Advent is a proclamation that in the midst of said darkness, when perhaps everything seems hopeless, a glimmer of light appears. You open up your Bible and you read, Adam and Eve chose to sin. And then a glimmer, the text points us to a snake crusher. You read on and Jacob takes his brother to Egypt. They end up in slavery. And the Lord raises up a glimmer, a redeemer. Even as we just finished the book of Exodus with a tremendous foreshadowing that God would dwell with us by building the tabernacle, we see immediately the people falling back into Sin. What's amazingly real about reading through the Old Testament is you, you come to these points, you're like, will this lead Israel to be faithful? No! The people fall into sin over and over again. I mean, the book of Judges tells that story. And the people did what was right in their own eyes. And that God would raise up a judge to bring them, to deliver them. And would that bring about faithfulness? No. 
And then they would raise up kings. Did that help? No. And then the kingdom divides and the northern kingdom falls and the southern kingdom would rather trust itself to Assyria than the Lord. And you find the people of Judah in rebellion. It's dark. It's bleak. And the Lord in that moment raises up a prophet. And he sends forth a man named Isaiah that he might speak. And for the next four Sundays, we are going to consider the book of Isaiah. Now, if you're paying attention, 2020, we are in Isaiah. 2022, we're going to be in Isaiah. Four very different passages. All looking forward, all considering this, this light, this expectation that in the middle of our trials, our struggles, our affliction, in the midst of the darkness, God resolves that in His Son. It's this forecast for us of the light. That's where we're going to be for the next month. We're going to let Isaiah point us to Jesus. So with that as our introduction, let us open our Bibles and pray. Gracious Father, as we're gathered together this morning, it is our desire that as we open up your book, Father, that you would calm our hearts, you would settle our spirits, Father, you'd wipe our mind of distractions. And God, that you would speak. Father, would you grant us understanding? Would you grant us insights? Would you make yourself known? And I especially pray, Father, that as we start this Advent season, that you would stir in us hope. That you would stir in us hope. Hope rooted in the appearance of Jesus as a baby. And a hope that will be fully manifested when he returns in glory. Father, would you build and grow this hope in us? For some of us need it badly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Book of Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 1, starts like this. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which was concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. In the first verse, the book is attributed to Isaiah. Isaiah's name means the Lord saves. You might even say the Lord is salvation. God raises up a prophet with the same name as the message he's going to bring. Then amongst the people who are looking for all kinds of means to find value, to find worth, choosing all different kinds of idolatry, God says, I'm salvation. Salvation comes from the Lord. We'll see that over the next couple of weeks. We're also told that Isaiah comes from a vision. Meaning it's more than just God calling him to himself and telling this, that God actually showed this to Isaiah. Isaiah, watch this. You see that show up in several verses along the way. The vision. It's unique. Tells us it's concerning Judah, the southern kingdom. I'm not going to wander us too far into this northern-southern kingdom divide, but you should know that God's people couldn't find unity. The northern kingdom gave themselves over and were carried off 
into slavery. The southern kingdom is struggling. And under five kings of Judah, Isaiah serves as a prophet for more than 60 years. Hosea and Micah being his contemporaries. So friends, what we find in this first chapter of Isaiah is that the Lord has raised him up to speak truth. And that truth begins with Judah's depravity. And the Lord wants to make it very, very clear that he knows the exact condition of his people. And it's not good. Starting in verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. The Lord is declaring to the whole earth the rebellious nature of His people. My children that I've, I've claimed, my children that I've purchased, my children that I've pursued, my children that I've made are mine. God says they've rebelled. They've turned away from me. They've completely rejected me. One commentator even wrote, even a stupid ox and a donkey know better. And yet Israel, Israel's worse. They don't understand. He continues. A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Continues into this picture. They are full of sin. They are corrupt. They forsake. They despise. They are estranged. There's a darkness, a heaviness, a weight. And he continues. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart, whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. The testimony continues. There's not even one healthy part from top to bottom, head to toe. It's all sick. Verse 7, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in the vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom. And become like Gomorrah. They're not just spiritually deplete. They're beat up. They're physically and militarily being overrun. Judah's being taken over by the Assyrians and they're on the brink. Isaiah goes so far in verse 9 to say, if there weren't even some survivors, if God wasn't preserving even a couple... They would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. That is, they would be judged completely by the Lord God and consumed with sulfuric fire. 
Isaiah is not painting a pretty picture of the condition of Judah. There's nothing about that that's encouraging. In fact, every single word seems to get worse. And it puts a a weight on you just to even read it. It's got a confining darkness. It just feels gross and icky. And it testifies that God knows the true condition of his people. He knows our true condition. We can't fool him. We can't hide from him. We can't deceive him. Church, in this time, in this place, we are really good about acting like we have our stuff together. We're really good about acting like we are solid. We're complete. We're doing well. Consider the fact that if somebody asks you how you're doing, without even thinking about it, you're just saying, I'm fine, thanks for asking, how are you? We live in a culture that tries to put it all behind. And yet, statistically, many of us are not doing well. And we think we can hide it. The Lord knows the condition of his people. And he gives them two alternatives. There's two paths that they can choose in response. We see the first path, we see the first path laid out in verses 10 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teachings of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. God says, I know your condition. And you can keep doing what you're doing. You can continue going through the motions. You can keep acting religious. You can keep doing religious things. You can keep going on with these rote motions, thinking that you're pleasing God. When in fact, He knows your heart the whole time. For what it's worth, I went through that section thinking, we need to preach Leviticus. We would have gotten so much more out of that passage if we'd preached Leviticus. God has called us to to worship Him. And we do it with an impure heart. God says, you can continue on in your ways. Ways that are an abomination. Ways that make me weary. 
and I will hide my eyes from you. I will not listen. Friends, Judah has fallen away from the Lord, and God says you can continue the practice of going through the motions and incur judgment. But that's not the only option. If you're keeping track in your mind, you could think about that first section as people who don't believe in the Lord, if you want. Just a way to think about this text. That there's a way in which we could pursue sin. We can make our life about pursuing the desires of our stomach, the desires of our heart. And there's judgment for that. You want to think about that second step in? You could think about false religious practices. That many of us can buy into this idea that if I do the right things, God will be pleased as if God doesn't know where our heart is in that. God says... I know. Starting in verse 16, he gives them another option. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from him, from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Simply put, God says, repent. Turn away from evil. Turn away from false worship. Turn away from idolatry. Turn away from your sin and choose me. Instead of false worship, bring true worship. Instead of false obedience, choose true obedience and choose... Instead of rebellion, choose faithfulness. Friends, when everything was dark and bleak and trending darker, I mean, the people of God hadn't just moved away from him. They'd rebelled against him. They'd completely rejected him. And if you're reading through your Bible all the way through here historically, this is not the first or the second or the third time, and it's probably not the 10,000th or the 50,000th. It's way more than that, that Israel has been unfaithful. And what gets me about 16 and 17, still on the screen, is the opportunity to do more and try harder. Fix it. Right? You know that sin you're doing? Quit it. Good luck with that. You know that idolatry that overwhelms your heart you can't get rid of? Stop doing that. Was that effective in Israel? No. Has that ever been effective in your life? No. There's a darkness that this text put be- puts before us, but there's a reality that this text puts before us. That you can't actually read it without going, there's a little bit of me here. There's a little bit of me here. There's a whole lot of me here. There's a whole, whole lot of me here. I do this. I practice this. I try to get away with this. I don't want anybody to know, but this is, this is where my heart is. In the midst of this darkness, 
God tells him, you can't keep doing it the same way. There's a different option. Then he gives him a different thing. A third category enters into the picture. A third category that's not continue to pursue yourself. Category that's not pursue false religion. A category that's not try harder, do more. In the 18th verse, it's like he takes an advent candle and lights the first light. Verse 18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. If you refuse and you rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Come is an invitation. Come is an invitation. When you should expect condemnation, if not outright smiting. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. You should know this word reason points to a legal term as if it's going to be a trial. And if it isn't obvious by now, God the judge has all of the information on you he could ever want. And he knows the answer is Guilty, 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 guilty. Tried a little bit, still really guilty. And yet he says, come, let us reason together. And then consider what it says. For though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. This has actually become my favorite passage, having moved up into the upper Midwest. Because it is a good right testimony that when the Lord sees fit to drop eight inches of snow in my yard that my wife will detest, it is a good and right reminder of his grace, correct? Nothing made me understand this sentence more than owning a dog. If you own a dog in the spring, some April or May, my yard is covered with what we'll call dog mess. And what's fantastic about that is you don't know because it's covered with snow. But as soon as the snow leaves, you're like, that's nasty. (laughs) Though your sin is like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Isaiah begins slowly to forecast for Israel that God's going to provide an answer that's not choose yourself, feed your belly in your mouth, that's not pursue false religion, and that's not go through rote emotions or rote rote motions. God is going to provide something different. Facts, six chapters later, we preached this two years ago, won't touch it now. Isaiah would write, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 
But in this Advent season, when the darkness is pervasive, God doesn't just send you a note. He doesn't just send you a card. He doesn't send you a messenger. He sends you his son. Call his name Emmanuel. God with us. God is going to physically manifest himself in our presence. Two chapters after that, he writes in Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. And of the throne of David and of his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. For to us a child will be born, a son will be given. What's fantastic about Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 is if you put them in the context of Isaiah 1. In the midst of the darkness, God brings a light. And a light that's so different. And a light that's so distinct. And a light that doesn't say, do more, try harder. And a light that doesn't say, just keep practicing the motions, you'll get it. A light that says, God, because of His Son, Jesus, is going to see to it that all of your sin is forgiven because of His work. Because you can't do it well enough. Not even your best effort's going to be good enough. God sends His Son, Jesus. That's the celebration of the season. That's the reminder that Advent starts to bring forth to us. That we should be reminded that though life is really hard and trying, and at times you'll need to even find a place to hide. Whether that's external pressures or internal ones. Beloved, there is a light, there's a hope, and there's a hiding place. So that we should be reminded that no matter how dark the darkness feels, and friends, I know for some of you it's really, really dark. And no matter how much the hopelessness feels really, really, really hopeless, and I know for some of you that's really, really, really hopeless, we celebrate Advent to be reminded that God knows that, acknowledges that, sees that, and shines a light out there. That His Son has come, and His Son will come again. So whether you are walking in rebellion, or in pain, or in suffering, whether you've rebelled a hundred, a thousand, or tens of thousands of times, you'd be reminded of that light. And you would know because of that light, there's always an invitation to come. I love communion Sundays. Love them. The practice of the gospel. We're going to sing a couple songs. We're going to prepare for communion here in a minute. I want to forecast that for you. 
If everything we've read in Isaiah, you read those first seven, nine verses, and you go, oh, that's icky and gross, it gets resolved here. If you're that person who feels like, I've been trying, I've been striving, I'm going through the motions, it's not been enough, it's not been good enough, I keep trying, I don't get it, that gets resolved here. I love communion for us to be reminded of the fullness of what Jesus Christ accomplished for us. And Advent communion is always my favorite. Let me pray for us. We'll continue to worship. Gracious Father, thank you so much for your word. That it would testify to us that you know our condition. Regardless of how much we try to hide. Regardless of what we try to keep to ourselves. Regardless of how dark and bleak it feels to us, God, you know our condition. Rather than asking us to try again, rather than asking us to saddle up and get it done, rather than asking us to do more and try harder, you provided your son Jesus. Father, what a glorious and tremendous blessing Jesus is to us. Would you allow an enormous spotlight to be shined on him this season in our lives and in our hearts so that we could truly celebrate all that his birth means to us and all that his return will mean. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.